In Portland, Oregon, I'm Zach Jabal. And in Vine Pair's New York City headquarters, I'm Tim McCurdy. And this is the Friday Vine Pair podcast. Tim, I'm in a hotel room. It's dark, a little echoey, but you know, we're here to bring you the scintillating content that uh, we always provide on the Vine Pair podcast. How, how's your week been? Yeah, it's been great, thank you. And yeah, just recording a little early today. What is it? Change-up season now? Baseball started, Zach? You're throwing, <laughs> throwing change-ups my way? I don't know. Yeah, no. Everything's been great, thank you. Fantastic. I'm So I'm really excited to get into this topic because I think there's a lot to dig into here. And uh, for those of you who don't read episode descriptions and stuff like that very clearly before you click play, which, hey, good for you, uh, we have a really fascinating interview that you did with uh, Academy Award-winning director Steven Soderbergh about a spirit that he's gotten deeply involved in, uh, and we'll, we'll kind of get into that. But I wanted to to start this conversation, which is kind of spawned by a sort of almost throwaway mention in that interview that you had, which is kind of like, you know, not this is a big spoiler for the interview. You kind of asked him, you know, when you look at the spirit, Singani, which is a, a grape spirit from Bolivia, do you see one natural model for trying to kind of get this spirit more in the public consciousness would be to look for a cocktail that calls for Singani in a very distinctive way in the way that neighboring South American grape spirit Pisco is obviously the spirit you use in a Pisco sour. And, you know, kind of just threw that in there and it kind of didn't become a big point of conversation, which is fine because now you and I can talk about it. <laughs> and and I was wondering, you know, when you were talking to Stephen and when you were kind of thinking about this, what was your sense? Do you think, you know, he kind of said, ah, we don't really want to be pigeonholed as the spirit that goes in that one drink. And then otherwise, if you don't like that drink or you don't want that drink, you never touch it. And, you know, you can, I think, speak candidly now. Like, do you think that's right? It's a great question, not because I posed it, of course, but it's you know, it's something that I've thought about a lot actually um, through the lens of Pisco because you know what will it take for Pisco to happen in a major way? Mm-hmm. We've seen a small trend of bars here returning to the Pisco sour. Some never left it, but others I've seen devoted Pisco sour menus mm-hmm. now. Do you want to be that spirit is a great question because, to your point, if you don't like the cocktail, then basically, if a drinker doesn't like it, then they completely disregard it. Mm -hmm. Stephen does know, again, this is a bit of a spoiler, but not a massive one, that they think this is almost like a one-bottle bar, that it can do everything. You can make martinis with it, you can make sours, you can make, you know, margarita alternatives. So... Look, if I had a brand, I would also kind of market it as that, right? That it can do everything. But my sense is that at least to get the ball rolling, I think a signature serve does more good than bad. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree for for two reasons. One is just that reality of starting to occupy shelf space on a bar becomes really valuable. And I think I think about that in the context of Pisco or like Cachaca, another spirit that I think when I was bartending, you know, became, you know, the Caparina had kind of its own like trendy phase and, you know, became sort of important that you had a, at least a bottle of Cachaca on the bar. And what happens with bartenders of a certain ilk is like they see the bottle and they go, OK, well, I, I, I know how to make this drink, right? I know how to make a Pisco sour, but like what else can Pisco do? And maybe they try a couple of different things, whether it's subbing Pisco for other spirits in an existing cocktail template, or they start playing around with it with other flavors or things like that. 
and it becomes suddenly a, a, a exciting, perhaps somewhat unique to their bar cocktail, right? Something that they can put forward. So, so I think it's that first point of entry, right? Of like, okay, we are going to be in this in most quality bars because the pisco sour or the caparina or whatever is a drink that people might call, and we want to be able to accommodate them if we're not even if we're not putting it on our cocktail list directly. And then once it's in the bar, you know, sometimes magic happens. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. Like the the signature serve, the cocktail that it's associated with gets it on the bar and then the bartender starts to play around with it. Great point there. I think another part of this conversation too, I'm just mentally looking at some of the other categories, right? So yeah, caipirinha and cachaça is a great example. To a certain extent, you could say tequila and the margarita. Hmm. You know, there's a couple of other ones, Paloma, but there really aren't that many quote-unquote classic or well-known tequila cocktails. Um, Gin, you have the martini and also the gin and tonic. And then it, you know, and then we arrive at Singani here. And for those listening who have no context, this is a fruit brandy, but specifically unaged. And I think that's a very important part of this equation too, Hmm. because... If you're talking about something that's aged, whether it's whiskey or cognac, people are sipping that neat. Now, I think more people could sip unaged spirits, but generally speaking, most people are going for cocktails. So for that specifically, I think that adds an extra level of why this might need a signature a signature cocktail or a serve. Yeah. And I think there's also the there's sort of this interesting point with something like Singani in particular, where like I think even more so than even Pisco, which is, I think, as we've talked about, kind of the net, the closest natural analog, just in ter- not so much in terms of exactly flavor profile or even application, but just, you know, place of origin, um, you know, kind of raw material, etc. We've already seen, I think, a sort of interesting change in the P- American Pisco market where you get out of the sort of first or second brands on the market that you could buy. And now you're seeing, you know, you're talking about the sort of places that are looking at putting together a Pisco sour menu. And one of the things that people are looking at is like, okay, well, let's talk about a different, you know, different Piscos from, you know, a couple of different South American countries, maybe some different parts of those countries, different grapes being used. There's, there's sort of the potential for someone who gets really excited about it to look in into the category and find some points of differentiation and maybe favorites. And right now, because Singani 63, the spirit that Stephen is importing, is the only thing in the American market, there's really – this is, again, where maybe the the signature surf becomes more, more appealing, I think, because, again, you're sort of the only game in town for the moment. And so where I think I understand not wanting to be pigeonholed eventually and saying, like, hey, we don't want to just be the bottle you have on your bar because you want to serve this one cocktail. I think you do need to have some kind of – Again, yeah, this point of entry because, you know, otherwise I think you just end up with a situation where, you know, it's kind of hard to get a to go from – even if you get the bottle in the bar, it's kind of hard to get that from the bottle that's bought by the, you know, the beverage director or whomever to the bartenders to guests without some kind of natural selling point. And it's maybe hard to convince people, yeah, as you were saying, here's a clear unaged spirit that the, you know, the recommended serve is on – you know, on a single large rock, that's just, I mean, some people might take that plunge. I probably would, but a lot of people are going to be like, uh, what else you got? (laughs) Or how else can you serve it to me even potentially? 
I think also like looking forward to the future. Something that's an interesting aspect of this brand is if Singani, if this does inspire other producers to import to the U.S. Mm-hmm. You know, this this new classification here officially recognized as a as a type of spirit by the TTB, as we'll get into in the interview. I think it's very. I don't want to say calculated, but it's very lucky or they, this brand will benefit from the fact that the name of the category is in the brand name, right? Stigani mm-hmm. 63. Now, if if that were already an officially recognized category here, I don't know whether the TTB would or wouldn't allow that, you know, a brand to launch with that in the name, perhaps yeah. not. But I think if, the, you know, if this takes off and more people get interested in it, I think that will be beneficial for this brand. For sure. And I mean, I think there are a lot of things about the the branding and the positioning that that do seem like they'll work for it. I mean, you know, I'm sitting here staring at a bottle. The label is, you know, eye catching. The name is, you know, sort of distinctive and, and captivating. And obviously, having a, a famous person involved with it has been a boon for many spirits over the last decade or two. So, Tim, I mean, the other important thing here is: Have you tried this yet? I have tried this. Yeah, I'm I'm about a quarter quarter way through my bottle here. Not today. (laughs) Uh, We're going to try it, you know, together. We're going to take our first sip together today. But yeah, I have had this. um, Some one thing I wanted to talk about, and I guess we can talk about it when we're tasting Zach. But um, you know, I don't want to throw any shade over the way at the fine folks in cognac and whatnot and other great brandy producing regions of the world. But this product is made using. Muscat of Alexandria, which wine lovers will know, is a very, very aromatic and expressive grape. Mm-hmm. And we'll get to tasting this, but it did made me did make me question, you know, why aren't other regions using more expressive grapes rather than something like Uni Blanc, which goes into cognac, which, you know, people say this is the reason we use it in brandy because it doesn't really have enough character to merit being a, a wine instead. Mm-hmm. So... I think that's interesting. I think that's a very important part of this. And I also think that flavor profile that, you know, those aromatics will, when people approach it for the first time, help them go, oh, this is, you know, this is different. This is floral. floral. This is fruity. Um, but I want to hear your tasting notes, Zach. So should we pour a glass? All right. I think we should. Yeah, I'm I'm ready to go here. So I have a uh, a, a decent sized pour in a, the glass they give you by your sink in the hotel. Nice. Shouts to the Paramount Hotel here in Portland. Um, <laughs> I decided not to mess with uh, hotel ice, so it's just neat. And yeah, I mean, I, I think just even in in nosing the glass, like that that aromatic component is so distinctive. It is it is so much. Um, it almost reminds me in its aromas, perhaps not surprisingly, of some of the uh, grappas I've had that are made from particularly aromatic varieties. But mm-hmm. here. You know, you're not dealing with the same kind of production methodology. I'm fairly confident. I mean, you're not working with pumice or kind of finished mm-hmm. uh, finished wine. You're working with, or sort of the remnants of winemaking. You're working with wine itself as a distillate, and yeah, it's just really, really beautiful. And I think you know, there is something about that. I think people sometimes look at unaged spirits and think, oh man, they're going to be just like harsh, right? They're going to be hot. They're going to be not necessarily boozy, but just like we, you know, a lot of drinkers like the sort of rounding off of the edges that oak aging provides to spirits. And I think just that aroma, that sort of perfume and gentleness of it, maybe kind of will give people a little more confidence to dive in, but I haven't actually tasted it yet. So I should probably do that Mm. too. 
And I'll just add here too. This kind of reminds me. It's a you know a sibling of of Muscat um, Torrentes. Mm-hmm. This the nose really reminds me of that. And I do think too that you know when you taste it and when you smell this spirit. I actually don't know how well this would fare if it spent some time in oak. I think the, the the oak character might clash with the profile here, but I'm finding this just, I don't want to use the word refreshing, but you know what I mean? It kind of brightens everything mm-hmm. up, just those aromas and um, love the palette too. Yeah, and and you can sort of see why from a just sort of absolute quality standpoint or, or whatever that the instinct would be to say, we don't want to pigeonhole the spirit in one direction because even in tasting it now, you can kind of see a lot of different potentialities, either just enjoying it as is or in cocktails. I almost think like something like a the equivalent of a Pisco Sour would be, I'm sure it would taste good, but I think you would, under some of the ingredients in that cocktail, you might lose, again, the, the aromatics. I'm not sure exactly. I don't know. Have you made any cocktails with this? Well, I was just, yeah, I was going to ask you that. I mean, you know, we're that's the topic of today. So mm-hmm. I'm curious, can we workshop some cocktails with this? Um, I actually haven't used it for cocktails yet, which kind of speaks to the quality of it as a, as a sipping spirit. I think I might go, maybe it's just because you mentioned this earlier, but I might go in the direction of a, of, of a caipirinha with this. Mm. A, it's a drink that I love, but I think, you know, with, with some acidity there from the lime and just a little bit of sweetness, I think that could be a wonderful serve for this. Yeah, I could certainly see that working. I, I'm I'm kind of unclear in my own sense to what extent I want to add a lot of citrus to this. I feel like a little bit maybe could be could be nice. Mm-hmm. And a caprini in that sense can be a caprini in that sense can be a good choice because I think you kind of get a, not so much less citrus, but you get, you know, especially if you're making it kind of with a whole or at least a half of a lime, you're getting a little of that kind of pithy bitterness too that can kind of keep it from going just kind of straight tart lime. So the first thing that occurred to me, I, I think, even though it's funny because it's like uh, a little bit contradictory of what I said about the Pisco Sour, but like because of the floral notes in this, like one of the first drinks that occurred to me was sort of like in something like a Ramos Gin Fizz. Ooh. Um, obviously not exactly a, a Yeah, simple, that's not really going to help sell a lot. <laughs> well, it might help. The guests might enjoy it. I'm not sure if the staff <laughs> will. But, you know, I, I mean, almost like, I mean, I feel like I'd want to try this like in almost like in a Collins, perhaps, like. Again, something where you're bringing a few other ingredients to bear on it, but you're not kind of getting too much in the way, or even a just maybe like a some kind of, some other kind of highball, like something where yeah. you're, you're kind of mellowing out the the booziness a touch, but you're not. Which I mean, to be fair, it's a forty percent ABV spirit. It's very normal. It's just it's just you know, if you don't want to drink it neat, but you want to kind of keep as much of the flavor intact as possible. You know, in the interview, I think Stephen alludes to like a. It has a gin replacement and Negroni, and I'm sure that tastes good. I'm not sure it's the direction I would take it because I think part of what makes, you know, gin such a good combo with sweet vermouth and Campari in that cocktail is that, you know, the the kind of potent juniper notes really stand up to those other flavors. To me, this needs a little bit more of a, of a, of a less, less kind of vigorous, (laughs) intense uh, cocktail playmates it needs to mm-hmm. like be able to have a little bit of a more of the spotlight on it to really show its its character i think the viscosity of the spirit is also really interesting and something i'm going to continue to think about i mean i'm su- a little surprised you haven't actually tried it as a martini but i think that actually could be an interesting serve as well um i think you'd have to pick your vermouth carefully but i think it could work quite nicely yeah i mean 
again, this isn't going to really shift a ton of product for them, but um, something I like to do, maybe it's my second martini of the night or whatever, you know, I'll have a classic first, but I do very much enjoy adding, swapping out a quarter ounce of however much gin I'm using and adding in a quarter ounce of um, eau de vie. And I think it would be brilliant with this. I think that would just add it. And, you know, maintain the soul of the drink, but just take it in a slightly different direction. I think that would be wonderful. As a a straight-up martini, I don't know. I'd have to try it. I would love to try it. But um, I'm not sure whether, again, that you would taste that and be like, oh, that's a really interesting martini. You'd be like, that's a pretty delicious or distinctive stirred drink. Yeah. The last one that occurs to me, and I'm curious since you just did an episode on it for Cocktail College, is maybe like in a white Negroni as a possibility, more than in a kind of classic formulation. I think that would be stunning. And I think those ingredients, even though Sue's can be kind of dominating, Mm -hmm. I think it would work. I think it would really play well in that. So maybe, actually, I think that might be the first cocktail I will make with this, a white Negroni. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think that's a great place for you and I to leave it. Uh, got a, like I said, a, a fascinating interview uh, that you did with Steven Soderbergh about his sort of introduction to Singani, his long <laughs> struggle to get it recognized as a category by the TTB and lots more. So, Tim, I will leave past you to that and I will talk to future you on Monday. <laughs> Sounds good. From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Tim McCurdy, and this is a special edition of the VinePair podcast, because today we're joined in the studio by Steven Soderbergh. Steven, welcome and thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. You know, we do like to occasionally delve into the topic of movies and TV here at VinePair, but that's not what we're about, specifically as a publication and a podcast, and it's not what we're going to be talking about with you today. Instead... It's a topic, a category, style, and a brand that's dear to your heart, Singani. Can you tell us all about it? Or give us a brief intro to Singani to start with, please. Well, like a lot of people, prior to being exposed to it in June of 2007, um, I'd never heard of Singani, was not aware that there was a national drink of Bolivia. And we were in Madrid about to start filming on the Che project. And we were having a startup party in Madrid. And because you can't make a movie about a Marxist revolutionary without having a startup party. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, And um, at the party, my Bolivian casting director, Rodrigo Bayot, came up to me and said, oh, I wanted to get you a a start gift. And so I brought you a bottle of Singani and he gave me the two-sentence history of it. And I said, well, how do you drink it? And he said, I just drink it on the rocks. And I said, great. So we cracked it open. He poured me a glass. And I had one of those instantaneous reactions that you have occasionally in your life sometimes to a person sometimes to a piece of art. Um, And in this case, it was a a complete sensory uh, explosion or at least an experience with a spirit that I'd never had before. I was a vodka drinker primarily. Okay. So three things happened when he 
when I first took this sip. The first was before it even got to my mouth. The the bouquet of the spirit was quite striking, very floral. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't used to having any sort of bouquet because I was drinking, drinking vodka, vodka most of the time. <laughs> um, then, then I took a sip, and it's very active on the palate. A lot of notes come out. If you talk to a dozen different people, they'll, get, they'll pull out a, do, a dozen different notes. So it has a very interesting quality that sort of shifts as you, as you work with it. And then, you know, as a straight vodka drinker, I'd gotten used to what I call the second swallow, which is the price you pay when you're drinking a hard spirit if you want to get into the end zone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, this had none of that. This just completely vanished on, like, disappeared. No second swallow, just super, super smooth. So immediately I started asking him more questions about this spirit, and he gave me what background he had. He had a family relationship with Casa Real, who was the distiller of the bottle he gave me. Um, he explained this was a fourth-generation family-owned business, that they had been the first company a hundred years ago to industrialize the process of making Zingani. Prior to that, it was all done sort of ad hoc, and people would sell it at the market. So they really, they really built it into a business. And one of the ways in which Casa Real distinguishes itself from the other distillers um, in Bolivia, of which there are many, is they use copper pot cognac stills that were made in France. Mm -hmm. And they distill their Singani twice. Everybody else is using steel column stills. Continuous stills. Yeah, and, mm -hmm. and distilling once. So the Casa Real Singani, as it turns out, has a much rounder profile, which has a couple of benefits, some of which I didn't realize until later. The initial benefit was that, that smoothness that I talked about. Later, much later, when we were coming to market, what we discovered when bringing it around to sort of high-profile mixologists just to get their take on what this thing was, mm -hmm. they all said, you know, this is really insanely versatile. I've been pushing it this way. I've been pushing it that way. I've made this with it. I've made that with it. You know, this is this is an aspect that I think you should really be trying to sell when you go out into the market. And we did that, but it's a, it's a, it's a complex story to sell to a consumer. Mm -hmm. and, and what I discovered when I started getting into this business, you know, after we six months of shooting Che where I'd been drinking this, you know, every night um, – and I reached out to Casa Real, and we made a deal. I applied to the U.S. government to come, become the importer. That was approved. Then you have to send them a sample of it so they can analyze it and tell you what they think it is, which in this case, which we'll talk about later, they said this is – they qualified it as – they called it a brandy. A brandy, right. And and probably useful for us to add here as well. So this is a grape-based distillate, typically unaged. 
Yes, Singani is unaged. Mm-hmm. Has to be a single varietal, which is the Muscat of Alexandria grape, which is a very expressive grape, right? Which yes. probably leads to those aromas and everything that you were getting there. That combined with it has to be grown, and it has to be grown and distilled at or above six thousand feet, and in this one twenty thousand acre area of the southern Andes in Bolivia. So the criteria. For for making Singani and being able to call it Singani is extremely narrow. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very it's it's a when you talk about a terroir driven spirit. I mean, this is hyper terroir driven. This is a, not a great place to grow anything, as it turns out. Wow! But that struggle that the grape has to go through these extreme diurnal temperature shifts. Land that because apparently 10,000 years ago it was underwater, and when the water left, it took a lot of the minerals with it. Wow. It's just very unforgiving. As a result, the grapes grow these very thick skins, and I think that's also a place where the aromatics yeah. start to come out. You have, Because of the altitude, you have a lower boiling point, which I think also helps with this sort of softness and burning off some of the harsher yeah. elements typically. So all of these things are kind of aligning to create a really incredible expression of this one grape that traveled from Egypt to Spain all the way down to southern Bolivia 500 years ago. It's a crazy random story. Yeah. I believe that actually, unless I'm mistaken here, I think it was one of the first grapes to arrive in, in, in South America, or one of the first varieties at least. I know it's also prevalent further south where, where that story, or some of that story was set in Argentina yep. and Chile as well. For folks that are probably familiar also with other grape-based distillates, brandies, you know, you look at cognac, which is probably the most well-known one in the world, right? They're using Uni Blanc, which is a grape variety that if you're to drink wine made from it, really doesn't have yeah. a lot of character. Yeah. Whereas Muscat of Alexandria, yeah, again, we're talking about one of the most expressive grapes out there. The wine that they make before they turn it into Singani is spectacular. Like, really, really good You're wine. like, do we have to distill this? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I was like, oh, and as it turns out, you know, Casa Real is also in the wine business. Um, but... For our purposes, you know, as I was learning all of this background and sort of figuring out step by step, how does this work? I mean, I had no, no understanding of the the liquor business, the booze industry, didn't know anybody who was in it. So at each chapter, I would go, what do we do now? So <laughs> we we get this categorization of brandy, which... I understood to be technically true since the TTB views any anything distilled from a fruit is technically a brandy mm-hmm. for them. But I found it confusing. I was confused by it as a layperson. And I had a feeling that consumers would be confused by it as well. And particularly young people, I think, are not big brandy drinkers. And we made a little short film as part of our petition to the TTB to get this category in which we interviewed 15 or 20 people around the U.S. They applied to be interviewed. We sent them a bottle without a label on it. We would ask them these questions and then we would ask them to taste the Singani and tell us what they thought. 
to a person when we asked them, when you hear the word brandy, what do you think? They all said brown liquid, snifter, white guy, library, cigar, you know, all of it. We we built a sentence that flowed perfectly of eight different people saying the same thing. (laughs) All of them, these are people 35 to 25 um, all of them said, not a big brandy drinker. None of my friends that I know really drink a lot of brandy. And then we asked them, taste, open that bottle and taste it. Tell us what you think. And they did that. And then all these different notes came out. Somebody said, oh, I'm picking up a kind of peppery thing. And somebody said, oh, it's like a gin. Somebody else said, no, it's like a tequila. Somebody said, no, it's kind of like a rum. And so you had all these different th- And then finally we said, that's a brandy. And all of them went... That would have been last on my list of things to describe to yeah. you know, pair with this. Mm-hmm. And so we made this presentation in November 2014. We'd come to market in January. And I'm sitting across the table from 17 people representing four different agencies that have to sign up on this. So we've done our spectral analysis. We've shown, you know, that that on a molecular level that Singani doesn't really bear much relation to anything that's been aged. You change the structure of something when you put it into wood and age it. And people that make brandy consider something like Singani to be unfinished. Yeah. So we did all that and weren't getting a lot of traction. Um, and a couple of years go by, we keep reapplying. They keep kicking it back and we keep reapplying and finally, you know, I did that thing where I reached out to a political consultant friend and said, I need a lobbyist. Like, I can't, I've hit a wall here. Like, nobody will engage with us anymore. And they and I hired this lobbyist. And after a couple of years, they finally got us a meeting with the person. This is 2017, 2018, hmm. Deputy Secretary of the Treasury under Steve Mnuchin. There's a guy named Justin Muzinich. We roll in. We've got half an hour. We make our little 10-minute presentation. He asks a series of very pointed, intelligent questions about the history of the spirit, our experience with the TTB and Treasury up to that point, and then says, well, I don't see any reason why this shouldn't move forward. I'm sorry this has been taking so long, I'm going to do what I can to kind of push this ball downfield. And then started things started to move. Yeah. Now, four years later, mm-hmm. um, we finally it, it finally happens. But that was the moment where finally it started to feel like it was going to happen. Now, we had borrowed the roadmap that Steve Lutman had created for LeBlanc Kashasha, when Kashasha got their category designation. Right. And he basically said, look, you've got to come up with, there's got to be a transaction here. You go into the room and they tell you it's all about the merit of the spirit and you proving that, he goes, that's that's, not the case. Yeah, you got to, he goes, so what we did was we got um, Peru and Chile to recognize, you know, Tennessee whiskey Right. And bourbon as specific products of the United States, which actually helps. They have a big counterfeiting problem all throughout that country. Right. And this does enable companies now like Jack Daniels to go after 
people. Right. So it's a it is a legitimate sort so it of serves everyone really. Yeah, I mean, apart from the producers of uh, whiskies or spirits that are claiming to be bourbon or Tennessee whiskey, but they are not. Those yeah. are the only people that would lose out in this equation. Exactly. So we went that route. We were able to get um, the government agencies to talk to each other, mm-hmm. sign an agreement. And that was the sort of penultimate step before the category was announced. But again, it was it was you're dealing with the government. So you have your guy call back channel. Hey, what's going on? Looks good. Looks good. When do you think? I don't know. Maybe April. April goes by. What do you think? I don't know. September. September goes by. January 13th, 8 a.m. this year, my phone starts blowing up from all my Singani no. team. And I call them and I go, what's up? They go, they just posted it. Wow. Like no call, no heads up, nothing. It's like <laughs> it's it's up. Like it happened. Congratulations. That was something. I mean, I really was sitting in that room in November 2014 and having a real understanding of how difficult this was going to be, how rare it is that they yeah. give these things out. They don't want to. I yep. mean, their default is to say no because mm-hmm. it's a hassle. And so I really took a deep breath, but I felt like, honestly, apart from the, the political aspect of it, we meet the metric for this easily compared to other spirits like Pisco, who've gotten designations like this. There you've got seven or eight different varietals that can be made in two different countries, and the terrain doesn't yeah, nowhere matter. nowhere near as specific. No, it's, it's tighter than champagne, yeah. actually. So I really felt like on merit we, we had a good case, but it was, uh, you know, it was a big rock yeah. pushing up a big hill. And so I've got a couple of follow-up questions there for you because I think you did a very good job of highlighting why you don't want this to be categorized as brandy because then it starts to get put maybe in the brandy sections of liquor stores or on wine.com or whatever, right? And people look at that and they go, that ain't brandy, that's got no color. So I can understand why you wouldn't want to do that, right? But then knowing how much of a, a an uphill struggle it was or or the task that was ahead of you, maybe you had a slight idea of it. You were doing that to promote or have this recognized category of Singani, which I would imagine is not familiar either to consumers. Um, From a business point of view, it seems like that might not be what you would want to do in terms of getting consumer attention. So was this more of, of a, was the drive more like we rightfully deserve this and we're going to go after it? Or was it to, to also set it apart and then say, then the next job begins on educating people on Singani and what it is? Well, for me, it was mostly, it just didn't feel correct. Yeah. You know, the mandate of the TTB is to inform the consumer about what they're drinking I felt this was confusing. I felt given the proportion of brandies that are out there that are aged and are the kind of the opposite of Singani, that it just, it was really not doing anybody any favors by by not making this distinction. And so I I just had to believe that if you if you you have to kind of will these things 
into existence. Yeah. You know, and I thought about the fact that as a filmmaker, you know, I grew up in a suburban subdivision in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I didn't know anybody in the entertainment industry. I just wanted to make movies and just decided it's going to be somebody. Mm-hmm. Somebody's going to pop. Like, why not me? And so I just tasked myself with teaching, you know, teaching myself the, the mechanics of film and watching films, making films. I just felt like, you know, forget about the odds. Like, this is not about the odds. And I really had to look at the TTB the same way and just go, well, other people have done it. I feel like we have a great case. So we're just going to we're going to stick to it. It took Steve Letman 10 years. So I kind of had a baseline, you know, to deal with yeah. that, that kept me calm. But the educational part of it has always been tricky in the sense that, you know, we we start off with something nobody's ever heard. Right. And I'm talking one of the first people that we brought it to in New York was Jim Meehan at right. PDT. And Jim Meehan's like, never heard of it. <laughs> so <laughs> my my team member and I are like, okay, that's interesting. And Jim was one of the people that said, like, I'm really having fun pushing this thing around. Right. And that – so we decided this is going to be our first avenue, which is – top-shelf, hardcore mixologists, people like Jim, Julie Reiner, Ivy Mix, Alex Day, yeah. Devin Tarby, you know, all the, we're going after the top, top people to, A, get their opinion about it, and, and B, if, if they're inclined to be a sort of friend of the court, which they have been. And, and that step took us to a certain point but then when you want to get past that to a consumer, it gets much more difficult. Yeah. And nobody has the time to hear the history of this brand. No server has the time to tell them the story. They, you know, they look at the name. They're not sure how to how do I pronounce it. They don't want to get it wrong. Yeah. You know, and, and that's a real uphill battle. We accepted it because I said to everybody, you know what, the only thing worse than us having to describe to people something they've never heard of or never tasted before is rolling up here with another vodka or another tequila, trying to explain why it's different. So at, true. At least we are different. Mm-hmm. Like we're completely different. What the TTB categorization does for us is it, it fills in the last piece of that educational piece by explaining to people why you've never heard of this because it's a new category. It's not a new spirit, but the reason you never heard of it is the government hadn't really identified it as being unique before. Now it has. You can, in this context, you can trust your government. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it just helps. It helps when you say to people, well, when, when they say to you, well, what is it like? That's what everybody wants to know before they've tasted it or if they're just talking about it. And if you say, well, it's not really like anything, that just sounds like a pitch. Now we can say it's not really like anything. And because of that, we have this categorization. Nice. So it just – it's helped already. It's helped a lot. Plus, I mean, I don't want to tell people their business, but I, I feel like 
any self-respecting bar at this point now that it's a category, you got to have a bottle. You got to have one. You know, it's a new thing. And when the when the posting went up January thirteenth, it said effective February twelfth, and I was like, "What does that mean? Are you going to check <laughs> that people are what carrying it, or that they have it in a special section now? You know, at the spirit store? Yeah, like, what's what is what's in the enforcement month? here? I I, <laughs> I I have no idea, but um, it it has already helped a lot in. The people that are in a position of having to tell our story for us now have a weapon, you know, that people can kind of understand. Yeah. And you mentioned bartenders a lot there. And I think when it comes to growing a category, a new category or new style or unfamiliar style, those bartenders really are your your ambassadors, right? I mean, if you get one bartender on board, then they in turn can tell 50 drinkers so the conversion rate there yeah. in terms of marketing to try and get individual drinkers that's fantastic um i'm wondering does the next step of this education process involve perhaps hoping we can devise a, a kind of signature serve i think about the pisco the pisco right that you mentioned before similar in some ways very different in other ways and i've often wondered myself does pisco benefit or lose out from the fact that it has the Pisco Sour. Right. Because that's a drink that's pretty widely known. But I would imagine you have a lot of people saying, oh, no, I don't fancy a Pisco Sour, so I'm going to drink a different spirit. Right. Rather than, what else can I use Pisco for? Yeah, right. So in in terms of Singani, what's your thinking there? And and again, this next step of education. Well, again, that's the tricky part. So how do you... How do you explain to people that this is the one bottle bar, literally? We created this booklet that's, that's on our website that I shot all the pictures for. This is how granular it gets, where we did 24 classic cocktails in which you use Singani as either a base or a modifier. And, and the range is pretty crazy. I mean, you're going from, you know, I'm looking at it here, a Vesper to a Negroni, to a Manhattan, to an old-fashioned, a Sazerac, a Vucare, a Benzenhurst, a Margarita, Mojito, Sangria. It makes a fantastic Sangria daiquiri, obviously. The nice. sour, the sour, obviously, is very good. And we had a really fun uh, demonstration that one high-level mixologist did for his Pisco rep once. It was it's it was kind of a weird trick to play, but he was trying to you know, show us how excited he was about the spirit. He had his Pisco rep come in and say, I've made you two sours and I want you to taste both of them and then I want you to pick which one you like more. Ooh. And so this Pisco rep picked the Singani Uh sour and they were not happy to hear that. But he, he had brought us, you know, to see this to show... You know, you've got something. This is early, early days, like first few weeks of us being available. So, again, how do you explain to somebody this is a a one-bottle bar? And essentially, you know, when people go, what is your goal here? My goal is for Singana to be viewed as the eighth base spirit. You know, I have Alex Day on camera saying, this is a new base spirit. This doesn't happen very often. No. And so... That's 
again, for a consumer, that's a tricky sell. Um, but in the meantime, what we've now started doing is we have some we have some campaigns built that we're going into very specific markets and kind of rolling up into a neighborhood as though we're a big brand. You know what I mean? Bus shelters, you know, taxis, all this stuff, just to see, you know, wh- I don't know what the language uh, situation. Anything was. flies. Okay. So the campaign is called What the Fuck? And the campaign is What the Fuck is Singani 63? Which is the thing that people say most often <laughs> when you roll up with it. So the whole campaign's built on that idea that, yeah, we know you don't know what it is, but we have this sort of cheeky way of bringing you into the fold and answering that question. So we did one test market so far, and it worked really well. It was in San Diego um, in the Gaslamp district there. We sort of, like I said, we we rolled in with like a heavy campaign for a couple weeks. And so we're continuing to test that while we start to to build out, you know, our, our footprint. I mean, we're, I think we're in 20. 29 states you can get wow. us you can get us online shipped anywhere so it's simon ford said to me once when he was giving some very good advice don't confuse expansion with growth and we've tried to be really careful about that cuz you don't get a second shot at a market if you if you go in and fail you're kind of done and so we've tried to be really careful about that we are we're in the UK right now. We've been there for a while, and the last nine months that started to move upward. I'm not sure why. <laughs> we got to figure that out. We've had offers from a lot of countries outside the U.S., and we've just said no because we can't open up this many fronts. You know, it's just me at this point. Really, still like subsidizing this. So. You know, what we're hoping to do is over the next two to three years, now that we have the category, you know, building ourselves up to a point where we are on the radar now of a larger company, not to be bought, but I want infrastructure. Distribution. Yeah, I just want a system I can hook into. Yeah. I don't want to – I still want to run this thing, but I just – I need resources and I need – a distribution network so that I'm not doing this a la carte everywhere we go, including every state. And as you know, the stuff that I learned the hard way uh, when this all began, the incredible range of rules from state to state about this stuff, whether you have control states or you have a state like Washington State where the taxation on spirits is unbelievably Hi, Texas has got this very weird four-tier system where the bar can't order directly from the person that's selling the spirit. They have to yeah. go through all these different steps. So it takes you months to find out like who's ordering or if they're ordering. Like every state's got these wild rules that they do not want to change. Yeah, um, that have been there since the end of prohibition, literally. Yeah. And so it's getting wild. into that was like, you're kidding. Like, 
Mm-hmm. If the movie business, distribution business ran like this, they'd be really screwed. <laughs> like this is so slipshod, you yeah. know, and inconsistent. And I mean, it's so interesting there, just as a quick side note, though, like you said, you can order this online and have it delivered. But what I'm sure a lot of listeners don't realize is that every single one of those orders is going through all of those three tiers of distribution behind the scenes. Yeah. Basically, you know, jumping over legal hurdles that I are a throwback to over 100 years ago. It's yeah. Very wild. No, and I think, you know, as as we've all seen, there's been, I think, somewhat of a, of a reset or a rethink about these things after in the aftermath of COVID. Mm-hmm. I would love to see some more consistency. I just don't know how you do it because the... For, especially for a small brand, like you just don't have the resources to fight this stuff state by state. Like yeah. You just don't. And the people aligned on the other side have a lot of money. Yeah. But yeah, and it, the, the catch-22 of being in a control state where they won't take you and put you on the shelf unless people are ordering it. But yeah. if they can't get it, how are they ordering? Like, it's crazy. And the, the crazy thing is I've heard from bartenders as well on the other side where they're like, they're trying to prove to the, the, the control state that they will show enough demand for it. So it's kind of crazy. Uh, we could probably go on about this for yeah. a long time. But let's bring it back to Singani for a second. Yeah. And listening to you talk about, you know, some many of the efforts you've made here, it sounds like you've done a very good job of gaining trust with those who you who have been introduced to yourselves right so you talked about there if you tell people this isn't like anything you've had before their obvious thing is going to be like yeah that's a sales pitch and then turning around and being like and because of that we've done this and the other thing that i think is very smart too is that oftentimes you, I will encounter producers or new categories and people are like, you know, you can use it for all this, but actually, I just like drinking it neat. And most people don't drink their spirits neat, especially unaged spirits. Yeah. Calling it the one bottle bar, I think, is a phenomenal idea. Testing it out in all of those cocktails, even better, and having those recipes online. But it also strikes me as a category that's like has a lot to appeal to spirits geeks. Yeah. You mentioned terroir, small production. So I wonder if you wanted to share any more of those too, because I think like we look at categories like Mezcal, where there's a huge interest right now, and yeah. people like the idea of smaller producers, less industrial, you know, all of that kind of thing. So yeah, any other kind of we can get into the geeky nitty gritty here because that's that's who our listeners are and that's what they want to hear about. Well, you know, it was just my good fortune that the bottle Rodrigo gave me was from Casa Real because their methods are are unique in in and of themselves. In addition to the distillation that I talked about, you know, when they started when they started this process and decided, you know, we we really want to make this uh, a proper business, they consulted with agronomists in the Middle East and in Africa to figure out how to grow these grapes, you know, in this, on the sides of these mountains, essentially, and how to irrigate them. Like, how, how do we, how do we make this work? And Mm -hmm. so they came in and reshaped, you know, the terrain in order to be able to irrigate properly. The other thing that, that they've been smart about is, 
they've they've created a a really fantastic they have their estate grapes which singani 63 the label that they sort of created for me is all estate grapes and is basically a turbo version of their black label singani that they sell in bolivia the black label and a white label um all the rest of their singanis are a combination of the estate grapes and these co-ops that they've been working with for decades um, they, it's a great company. It's run really well. These are good job. People want to work there. They, they, the immediate impact if Singani were to sort of become a thing, mm-hmm. um, would be palpable on that community, their ability to bring more people on. I've talked to them you know, one of the first things, first conversations we had, I said, look, I'm planning for success here. What if this blows up? How do, wh- what is the, what is your ability to ramp up production if we need to ramp up production? They sell on average about 4 million bottles of Singani in Bolivia a year. So 10 years ago when we had this conversation, they said, well, we have a plan for that. And a year ago, they just opened the expanded version of their distillery. It's now twice as big as it used to be. And it's also, I think, in the, in the hopes that geeks will want to come really get eyes on how this is produced. Yeah. The, the new part of the distillery is designed for that. You know, it has a restaurant and a bar. Visitor right experiences. By. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. that's – you really – it's it's impressive what they're doing there by any standard. And so all of this means potentially more flights, more tourism. Bolivia is a fascinating country as it turned out and yeah. not, not just because Che was killed there. <laughs> One of the reasons Che ended up being killed there is – and I didn't remember this when I was starting the process. Bolivia is landlocked. And so when I started this process of trying to get all this stuff on a boat to get to the United States, somebody <laughs> reminded me, yeah, well, it's going to have to go through Chile and then get on a boat, which is a whole other level oh of my God, yeah. complication. You know? And I mean, during, during the pandemic, and everybody was having this problem, you saw it on the news, you know, you'd put stuff on a boat and you just didn't know when it was going to show up months months later something that would typically take two months was taking nine no way yeah i mean it was we were lucky we we kind of we had enough supply to to keep us going but i know brands that 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 they were they couldn't deliver Yeah. yeah they were out of stock and that's not a place you want to be so, Stephen, I've got a final question here for yep. you today because um, I think you did a great job of explaining this is the one bottle bar. Um, I've got my eye on the martini there on the website, and I'm, I'm it's imminently going to try that. Yeah. Curious to hear for the listeners today if there's one serve, one cocktail, maybe it doesn't need to be of all time, but recently that you've been enjoying Singani 63 in, what would it be? Well, my go-to, obviously, based on my first experience with it, is is ideally – just Singani and a big rock. But I've been told by friends and acquaintances that the the Singani version of a Negroni is a real, very, very approachable, partially because of the Singani, but partially because we switch out 
the Campari for Aperol. So it's just got a it's got a rounder mm-hmm. feel to it. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm going to go out there get myself a bottle right now and make a martini. Oh well, enjoy and uh, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair podcast network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Shrino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.